This is a St. Jude moment. Imani is our first child. When she was about five weeks old or so, something seemed a little bit off. There was a fairly large and aggressive brain tumor. The second we arrived here, there was not a single other care in the world except for Imani. Food, housing, transportation, treatment, it was taken care of. St. Jude made that happen. Donate now at stjude.org slash curingkids. You're doing business in an app-driven, multi-cloud world. You want to build and run your apps on your choice of clouds, and you need to manage all those clouds as easily as one. With VMware cross-cloud services, you've got options. That's because VMware delivers the multi-cloud choice, security, and control you need to accelerate innovation, deliver great apps, and drive business forward. VMware, the smarter way to cloud. Learn more at vmware.com. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom, and we are thrilled to have our friends Derek and Laurel back from the Midnight Myth podcast. As you may recall, or if you do not go back and check out those shows, um, they were on the Greek mythology podcast and Derek then made a solo appearance where we talked about proto mythos um, and yeah that, 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 you know so you can check that out and I was on their show once and we reviewed the witch and I think we reviewed the heck out of that show um, so that was a lot of fun so it's great to have them back hello Laurel hello Derek greetings hello thank you for having us yeah great to be here that's great to have both of you again. Um, and today we're going to talk about 
King Arthur, Arthurian legend. And since I never know when I'm going to drop shows, I will tell the audience that this may be in the middle of an Arthur month. Um, because I'm going to be getting Arthur in several different ways. It just depends if it's actually four separate ways to make it a month. Or if not, and then I just have to hold a few of the shows until it's fresh again. Um, but I have a feeling I'm going to get at least three different versions. So, uh, today's version is probably going to be the one that would come first in that because it's probably the one that most people are familiar even a little bit with. Uh, because Laurel and Derek are very familiar with the literature, which is probably where most of the fiction that we all have seen in the media comes from in one form or another, whether it's uh, one of my all-time favorite movies, Excalibur, which I haven't revisited in a while, but I'm afraid I won't like it anymore, uh, to uh, the, the Clive Owen movie, to the, the various TV shows. I mean, it's, it's never-ending how many times they bring back Arthur, public domain folks. So, Laurel, Derek, you're the expert here. Uh, please frame it the way you like give, and introduce yourselves and start wherever you like. Uh, to be fair, I will go on the record and say I am no expert on King Arthur. This is absolutely Laurel's expertise. I am just here to support and add in a little flavor because this is Laurel's absolute wheelhouse. Heck of a thing to live up to. Uh, we did name our child. Arthur, uh, because this is a tradition that's super important to me and I think important to both of us. Derek is definitely here because he can help to fill out the historical context around many of the periods that we're going to talk to, while I'm going to talk a lot about the literary and the mythological aspects of it. What flavor so, is he adding? He said he's going to add flavor. Is that flavor mayonnaise? Is it, is it relish? Honey mustard? I mean, we're talking about Dark Age Britain, so it's probably boiled cabbage and whatever they have. <laughs> Delicious. Excellent. Meat, potatoes, done. Haggis. All right. Uh, well, you always have to have one bad Jeff joke in, in uh, per show. That's the rules. All right. Laurel, take it away. Yeah. So there are a lot of places that we could start because the Arthurian legend is a tradition that spans centuries. It spans millennia. Uh, so it's hard to even think about how to frame this out. I think because we're going to talk primarily about the literature and the historical context around it, we can start with kind of the question of how this legend erupted. Where did this come from? And to answer that, we really have to revisit what we might call today the Dark Ages, though scholars tend to dislike that term or find it a little bit reductive. Uh, we can still use it to frame out this time in history because we're talking about the 5th and 6th century uh, CE, in the British Isles. And if there ever was a dark age, this is that. In Britain, over the course of hundreds of years, 400 years about, uh, the Roman Empire expanded its reach well beyond Rome. You know, it conquered most of uh, the European continent and beyond at this point. And people who lived in Britain, on the British Isles, particularly uh, ancient Britons, these Celtic peoples, the Welsh, we might call them today, um, were under Roman rule and Roman protection. There are many Roman ruins in Britain today that you can go and see because this was very much a thriving Roman community and they were under the protection of this empire. Now, over the course of several hundred years and Derek can tell you lots about the Roman Empire and all the things that led to this, but around 410 AD, 
Rome was eventually sacked by Gothic tribes, and they had to very swiftly pull all of their troops out of the territories beyond their reach to come back and defend the heart of the empire. So the people in Britain, who had been Roman subjects for about 400 years and enjoyed all of the rights and privileges of being Roman citizens, suddenly found themselves without any infrastructure, without any protection, without any force that might protect them from outside invaders. So what happens? Bunch of people come from the outside and invade. We're talking about uh, the Picts, the Scots, we're talking about Jutes and Frisians, people coming from uh, Norse countries are coming and eyeing up this land and seeing how great it looks and saying, let's take it. So how Plus, do we respond? Probably some old grievances also get reopened, right? And probably some infighting. Certainly. Uh, so in order to combat that, uh, the records that we have of a time talk about a king named Vortigern, some records talk about him, some records don't, but this king uh, or this leader, this chieftain says, how do we combat these invading forces? Let's hire some mercenaries because we don't have the Roman protection anymore. We just have to get some people in here who know how to fight. So they hire a, a tribe of Anglo-Saxon mercenaries led by two figures named Hengist and Horsa. It's debated whether these are real figures or whether they are some folkloric, uh, you know, people who evolved from a mythological tradition and are held up as these uh, important and influential figures. They lead an Anglo-Saxon mercenary group to defend the British Isles, to defend Britain against the invaders. And then they get to Britain, they fight off all the invaders, and they're like, huh, there's lots of tin in the soil here. <laughs> the crops grow really well. I really like it here. How about we take it for ourselves? Because they can't defend themselves. They don't have anyone to fight us off. So then, after driving out all of these Scots and Picts and Jutes and Frisians, we have a full-scale Anglo-Saxon invasion of Britain. Now let's pause for a second because I think when people think Anglo-Saxon they probably think Britain but Anglo-Saxon actually those are Germanic tribes from exactly. what later is called well probably still called Germania so the Romans what they called themselves was there's about 130 different duchies and provinces and whatever there so Anglo-Saxon then was still very much German and not the Anglo-Saxon that you know from Robin Hood and when well what we think of Anglo-Saxon now. So, all right, sorry, just wanted to make sure folks knew that. Good point. And the borders and nationalities and identities and kinship groups will become very complicated as we get further into the legend, but that's important to point out. So full-scale Anglo-Saxon invasion of Britain, what happens? It's looking really bad for the Britons, right? Because they don't have any way to protect themselves or defend themselves. But we have archeological evidence to suggest that the Anglo-Saxon invasion was staved off and in fact reversed for about a generation. So someone, some group was able to stop this invasion and push it back rather than succumbing to the full Anglo-Saxonization of Britain for at least a brief time. And that right there is the fertile ground we're talking about where the King Arthur legend grows. The brief As shining well, light, right? Yeah, yeah. A brief golden age, if you will. And 
The actual evidence to suggest a figure named Arthur or something like Arthur is pretty sparse. We have one pretty reliable source historically, which is called the Annales Cambriae or the Annals of Cambria, essentially the records, the Annals of Wales. And this is just a ledger that says, like, here's what happened, what year it was, and here's the important people who were part of it. And it said at some time around the year five whatever, the Battle of Camelan happened and Arthur and Medrout both fell. That's about it as far as the, like, pretty reliable historical evidence. It does not tell us who Arthur was, does not tell us who Medrout was. Medrout is a proto-Mordred, right? It doesn't tell us who was fighting on which side, whether they were fighting together or against each other, or where Camelan was. Other than that, we have some archaeological evidence to suggest that there was a strong leader in Cornwall. We have some archaeological evidence to suggest that there was a strong leader who fought a good fight at some place called Cadbury Hill in Britain, which is synonymous with Camelot. Um, and then we have some Latin chronicles as well. We have an important Latin chronicle that Arthur is omitted from. There is no Arthur figure as it talks about this Anglo-Saxon invasion, but it does talk about someone named Ambrosius Aurelianus, who might be a candidate for the historical Arthur. This is a St. Jude moment. Imani is our first child. When she was about five weeks old or so, something seemed a little bit off. There was a fairly large and aggressive brain tumor. The second we arrived here, there was not a single other care in the world except for Imani. Food, housing, transportation, treatment, it was taken care of. St. Jude made that happen. Donate now at stjude.org slash curingkids. You're doing business in an app-driven, multi-cloud world. You want to build and run your apps on your choice of clouds, and you need to manage all those clouds as easily as one. With VMware cross-cloud services, you've got options. That's because VMware delivers the multi-cloud choice, security, and control you need to accelerate innovation, deliver great apps, and drive business forward. VMware, the smarter way to cloud. Learn more at vmware.com. We have more chronicles that do not mention an Arthur figure, but we have some that do, that are hundreds of years later and do discuss an Arthur figure. Surrounding that, we have um, some records of genealogy, right? So around like this, the sixth century, seventh century, we get four or five noble houses who all give birth to firstborn sons and all name those sons Arthur, mm. which suggests that there might have been a reason to name an heir to a powerful seat, Arthur. Sure. Uh, we have an important Welsh book of poetry called the Godovan that contains a poem praising some other guy, some guy named Gwarther, and there's an offhand mention within that poem to Arthur that says, this guy Gwarther was so great, he was so powerful, he was an incredible warrior, he could mow down a hundred people in one blow, but he wasn't Arthur. And this all suggests that there was some sort of oral tradition or some sort of word of mouth that, that it suggests that everyone was familiar with someone named Arthur or something like it. All of this is just this kind of soup, this milieu from which we can maybe extrapolate or interpolate 
a, uh, a chieftain or a tribal warrior named Arthur, but it's it's near impossible to confirm. And there are scholars who have puzzled over this for centuries, so I'm not gonna solve it tonight, but I do think there is at least enough smoke to suggest that there was some kind of fire. Okay, well, that's good. And I like whenever anyone references lyrics from the Sanford Townsend band. So that, that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, question for you. When did uh, Britain get Christianized? Britain was a, a, a colony of Rome, not a colony necessarily, but they were Roman, so it would have happened periodically over the time that Rome became Christianized, so around, what was it, 300? So in the 300s, Constantine decriminalizes Christianity in the Roman Empire, and he sort of like starts the tide of converting the entire Roman aristocracy to Christianity, which spreads throughout the course of the empire. Constantine, interestingly enough, was from Britain. He was a British right. Roman emperor. And some have argued that could the legend of Arthur be linked to the actual history of Constantine because he comes from Britain, he conquers the entire Roman Empire in a massive civil war, and then he starts the process of converting the empire to Christianity. When did like the rank-and-file British commoners become Christian? A lot harder to say. You don't have a Christian... Um, monarch until a, a Danish king, I believe in the 1200s, but my date's a little hazy, but in the high Middle Ages, um, converts to Christianity and from uh, Norse paganism to Christianity. And that's when you start seeing the reorganization of uh, Britain into a Christian state, um, which is to say there was probably a lot of paganism happening even from the time of Constantine through deep into the Middle Ages until it was finally purged. Um, so a lot of the Roman uh, you know, aristocrats, the Roman clergy, pardon me, they all converted, but the regular people still went around being pagans for a long, long time. Right, so it was not like a, a switch that got flipped. It's like, it's almost impossible to say eventually, because the, total side change the ancient Catholics and the early medieval Catholics they were clever if everybody went to a particular shrine at a particular date and time and they did a sacrifice and they had a feast and let's say the shrine was to Pan whatever got it you want to say but we'll just say Pan for the sake of argument they would take down the statue of Pan and put a saint there and after a generation or two because the people on the lowest rungs of society were illiterate they forgot the, the deity, and we're doing the exact same thing, except now to a saint. So they, they played a long game to convert people out of uh, a paganism into Christianity. So to my knowledge, and this is not my area of expertise, there's no hard and fast date. There is a medieval um, United Kingdom-esque British-English state under Snoot the Great, and then after his demise, and he, he dies, then comes William the Conqueror, and from there on in, it's like, you're either Catholic or you're dead. You know, so, like, that's when yeah. like, paganism is just completely not there. But there's probably paganism happening this entire time. Right, and we have to remember that we're dealing very much, as far as the early Britons, we're dealing very much in oral tradition. And we are trying to uh, imply and understand and excavate from the texts, which are generally... 12th century and later, we're trying to excavate centuries before from just what we have on the page, just what we have in manuscript. You're talking about Snoot. Do you remember when he was? 
Um, somewhere between. Uh, so wait, William the Conqueror was eleven hundred. So William probably, the Conqueror was 1066. 1066. Yeah. Okay, so he was before then. Gotcha. I, I'd have to look up the exact date. I don't have it. It's all right. I was just trying to figure out how related to Christianity the Arthur thing would have been in real time, and it, the answer is probably not all that much because while the while it had changed in Rome, I mean, you know, even though you call back your troops as quickly as possible, that that probably took weeks, if not months, to do even get that information from Rome to to Britain. But I mean, we I know that my knowledge from the show. Uh, the, the Last Kingdom and from Vikings and by putting them together and by reading many of the Saxon Chronicles by Bernard Cornwell, I know that Alfred the Great was the King of Wessex and he was very Christian, but uh, but he was oftentimes faced with uh, other British kingdoms that weren't or would flip and switch and, and other and Dane, Danes that were and weren't, and they'd switch back and forth going into uh, you know, at, at least the eight or nine hundred. So, uh, so anyway, so the Arthurian legend is not like it's not like Saint George, you know, it's not or Saint Patrick, where it took, took getting rid of the pagans and bringing Christianity. It's it's definitely not one of those. It's not that, but today most contemporary scholars will hold that this Arthur figure, if there was one, was almost certainly a Christian king by the time that he reigned, and he would never have called himself king, right? So he would have called himself the Dux Bellorum or a war leader of some kind because the traditions that we tend to associate with the legend of King Arthur are very much uh, anachronisms, right? They're mapped onto it from the later tradition from the 12th through the 15th century. And we like to think of knights, we like to think of castles, things that didn't exist in the historical time that is generally associated with the possibility of a historical Arthur, but this uh, this person would likely have been converted to Christianity already. However, many of the stories that exist from either the Welsh tradition around the sort of oral folklore through to the romances still contain a lot of the international story motifs that are associated with Welsh mythology, that are associated with a sort of ancient pagan practice. So there is a sort of a tension that runs throughout the stories of King Arthur between this transitional period from a Celtic paganism, a um, British paganism, toward a Christianity and a Christian kingdom. Well, there's also the Holy Grail, which figures, you know, sort of prominently into legends and, you know... Just I, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Now, I don't know if they knew that it was a Christian relic or, or not, but they, they knew it was something special that they were supposed to get. So uh, anyway, this is uh, I'm, I don't want to hijack your your uh, dissertation on because you're doing so well. And, and I, I keep jumping around a little bit. But, you know, that's that's my thing. I do want to talk about the grill, um, but we can we, we can sort of speed through how we get to that how we get to that element of the legend we don't so need to speed through anything you you can go i mean you can you can give us arthur as a young man you can tell us you know who the lady of the lake is about merlin and you know all of that other you know what's a pendragon who's uther you know all of that good stuff absolutely so i can just quickly answer pendragon of course is the uh, surname associated with uther pendragon the father of arthur uh, and then sort of later tradition, usually like really modern, like 19th century and later, start to call Arthur Arthur Pendragon as though he has adopted his father's title and style. Uh, but 
mostly that is assumed to be associated with the kind of Welsh ideas of the dragon as um, as a symbol of power, right? So it's a heraldic symbol of power, pen dragon meaning head of the dragon. So it would have been like the high chief, high king, all of those titles that we associate with Arthur, right? High king of Britain who unifies all of the petty and smaller kingdoms within uh, that proto country. Um, so zipping forward a little bit, we've talked about the historical foundations of the legend. We've talked briefly about the Latin chronicles, but I want to just fast forward to the 12th century, which is, I just talked about this on our podcast, my favorite of the, uh, of the medieval centuries. I really do love it because uh, some scholars will refer to what's called a 12th century renaissance. A lot of people look at the Middle Ages and think about it all as a dark age, right? All all this like people pissing in pots and just like being illiterate and running around the countryside hitting each other with lances and not knowing what's going on and certainly there was some of that like people were urbanization was declining right literacy was declining there was not a lot that was great about living in the middle ages but when we look at some of the developments that happened in the 12th century we can see the seeds of humanism and the renaissance coming along so certainly my favorite of the um, medieval centuries what happens in the 12th century is a Welsh cleric named Geoffrey of Monmouth uh, writes a really blockbuster work, which is called the Historia Regum Britanniae, or the History of the Kings of Britain. And this work is pretty massive and was extraordinarily popular in its time. Almost 200 manuscript copies uh, survive, which means it was circulating a lot because if you think about other great writers uh, of similar times, Chaucer only has about 50 manuscripts surviving of the Canterbury Tales. And so 200 manuscript copies of the Historia Regum Britanniae means like people were digging this shit. <laughs> this is a sprawling compendium of the history of all of the rulers of the British Isles from its founding, its mythicized founding by Brutus of Troy. No evidence to suggest that there was a real Brutus of Troy, by the way, but he comes, he founds Britain, and then there is this line, this descendants of great kings that eventually becomes the reign of King Arthur. And this work establishes many of the important conventions that will become hallmarks of the legend but we also have to consider the time in which it's written because Geoffrey of Monmouth, Welsh guy living in... This is a St. Jude moment. Imani is our first child. When she was about five weeks old or so, something seemed a little bit off. There was a fairly large and aggressive brain tumor. The second we arrived here, there was not a single other care in the world except for Imani. Food, housing, transportation, treatment, it was taken care of. St. Jude made that happen. Donate now at stjude.org slash curingkids. You're doing business in an app-driven, multi-cloud world. You want to build and run your apps on your choice of clouds, and you need to manage all those clouds as easily as one. With VMware cross-cloud services, you've got options. That's because VMware delivers the multi-cloud choice, security, and control you need to accelerate innovation, deliver great apps, and drive business forward. VMware, the smarter way to cloud. Learn more at vmware.com. Britain 
England at this time. It's 1136-ish when this comes out, so we're about a generation after the Norman Conquest. We are smack in the middle of what we just talked about last week on the podcast with relation to House of the Dragon. We're smack in the middle of the Anarchy, which is the uh, conflict between dueling monarchs, Stephen and Matilda, trying to vie for the crown of England. And this guy, Geoffrey, writes a double dedication within it. One dedication saying, I'm trying to curry favor with Matilda's side. One dedication trying to curry favor with Stephen's side. And in general, he's writing this compendium to say, this is England, this is Britain, this is our heritage, this is our pedigree. And it goes back as far as King Arthur, this great and ideal king and further. So it's a political text that is trying to establish the importance of England as the child of Britain, right? Uh, trying to map it onto this Anglo-Norman state that it is now and establish some kind of identity for it. But at the same time, you read the Arthur section of this and we get Merlin, right? Yeah. We get the uh we get the prophecy of merlin when he sees a comet in the sky and says a great king will be born to you uther uh we get the marriage of arthur and guinevere which shows up a little bit in welsh uh folklore but is more expanded within this narrative uh and we start to uh understand the concept of courtly love in this we also get uh arthur conquering rome Arthur leaves Britain and he goes to conquer Rome and he's just on the precipice of conquering what's left of the Roman Empire when he is pulled back to his kingdom to solve what's going on uh, with Guinevere, who is apparently taking up in sin with Mordred mm. in this version. Uh, so a lot of the hallmarks of the legend are laid out within this very specific text, which is aiming to be historical. It is pretending or possibly like extrapolating on a historical text jeffrey says that he has a british source no one has ever found it um and so a lot of people think that he may have just made a lot of this up but if he did he must have been like truly the most extraordinary fertile imagination of the middle ages so some people think there must have been some source for this um but yeah at the same time he lays out and and lays the foundation of so much of this tradition through trying to establish a historical pedigree for England, for Britain. Right. And Brutus, you know, comes from not just from Troy, but also uh, Troy via Rome. So right. Exactly. So, yeah, we're the grandson, to right? Of uh, Romulus? He's, he's Romulus's grandson? Something like that? Is that right? Uh, Brutus is... So there's debate whether the Brutus who organizes the attack on Caesar is related it's to a, the Brutus of the ancient founding of Rome. But it's yes. definitely a different Brutus. No, it's, a, it it's is, not that Brutus. It's Brutus is either Romulus's grandson or, or, or Aeneas's grandson. I think Aeneas's grandson. So, yes, yes. No, you're right. It's Brutus of Troy. So it's establishing Britain as the, as, as the descendant of Troy, which if you look at the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's trying to... Uh, build this sort of uh, connection to antiquity, this in, in connection to the past, this connection to yes, the glory of Rome. But the Romans believed they were also the descendants of Troy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's linking the power of the 
in the 12th century, the current English king back to ancient Rome. Well, yes, I, exactly. well, well I can tell you what the result of this is, and this is that the, Greek, the Greeks take credit for everything. Because right. Tro Troy is Anatolia, so everything is Greek. And my, to my friend Jimmy T out there, I know you're listening. Everything's Greek. We got it. Yeah, and this is a concept known as translatio imperii, so the like translation of power, translation of imperial power. And this concept essentially says that the balance or the the, the throne of power, the, the mantle of power has been unbroken, has been consistent, and has moved from east to west, from the lands beyond through to Rome, through to Britain, and says that we are the culmination of this great transfer of power. Absolutely. Well, that is a good pedigree. So Merlin, he, I guess he kicks this off with his scene. Uh, was it Halley's Comet or just a comet? It's a comet. Um, there are numerous comets that do appear in sort of medieval texts. There's a comet, I think, that is in the Bayeux Tapestry. And it is possible that it's Halley's Comet, but I haven't done a ton of research to, to know exactly which one it was. But comets tend to be portents of either like great calamities or like great rulers there was supposedly there's folklore around there being a comet that um, ushered in the reign of charlemagne and then a comet that portended his death so uh they tend to just signal great sea changes in leadership and important shifts in power well comets are also associated with dragons i mean they're you know they're the, course, the flying yeah. snake you know the, the flying fire-breathing snake you know sort of might that might be how you would interpret a comet if it's, you know, 500 uh, CE. And Merlin has a connection with dragons too, um, which I believe this is also Geoffrey of Monmouth. This is in the Vita Merlini. Um, it's Geoffrey of Monmouth who actually gives us Merlin's name as we say it now, Merlin, because the Welsh version of the name is Merdin, uh, M-Y-R-D-D-I-N. And Geoffrey was writing in Latin for an Anglo-Norman court, people who spoke French, and so if he had Latinized the name Mervin, it would have been something like Merdinus, which if you speak French, you know, means something like shittiest Maximus, <laughs> uh, because Merd means shit. So uh, he couldn't do that. No. So he, he changed the name to Merlinus, um, which now is Merlin. Um, but he wrote about the sort of young Merlin and the exploits of Merlin as a prophet and as a wild man possibility that Merlin is a historical figure is about as sound as that of Arthur. I think he shows up in the same chronicles uh, as Mervin, who is a, a warrior who um, his king is killed in battle and so he goes mad, tears off all his clothes and then runs into the forest, becomes a wild man and starts to prophesy. Um, but Geoffrey of Monmouth does write about his prophecies, including one where he's a young man brought to the uh, brought to the castle, I think, of Vortigern, uh, which every time he builds the castle, it keeps falling in and collapsing in on itself. And they're like, why is this happening? And Merlin says, well, if you look underneath the castle, there are two dragons who are fighting underground. One red dragon, which represents Britain, and one white dragon, which represents the Anglo-Saxons. And until you can subdue the dragons, you will never be able to build the castle. Um, so it's a potent metaphor that talks about the power of the dragon symbol, but also demonstrates um, Merlin's capacity for prophecy. Merlin, sometimes the son of an incubus, um, sometimes an antichrist demonic figure, but most of the literary tradition has him uh, also part of, a, also the, 
a virgin birth, right? So as a, an incubus seduces his mother and then he's baptized right after he's born. So there's this balance of him being a demonic half devil figure with also being a figure of good and a figure who is, uh, who serves a Christian king. Well, you know, we, I mean, from the Greek mythology, you know that that incubus is, could, is pretty oftentimes Zeus. So, you know, you, you can get good things or bad things from, from the incubus. And, and my friend Gilgamesh, he was uh, two-thirds uh, god, two-thirds divine, and the other one-third magic. I Don't ask me how that math works in that genealogy, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure somebody could figure that out. Anyway, so... Tabula rasa, and we got some man bear pig here. That's what it is. <laughs> right. So the but the so didn't John the Baptist didn't he sort of wasn't he like a madman that took off his clothes and ran around in in the wild lands for a while? That is possible. I I I you know I'm not really up on my biblical scripture, but the wild man is a um, that's a Celtic sort of folk motif that you'll see. Um, there's wild men, and then there's hermits, and they're sort of different because a wild man is mad and goes off without any choice and then a hermit is someone who makes the choice to go and live in the woods and live a life of poverty um but certainly it's a it's a motif that recurs all right so so merlin may be a recovering madman who decided it was time to get back to society because he saw comet and said hey i i'm part of this story so uh my 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 madness doth be gone <laughs> right and there are you know, several interpretations or several expressions of what Merlin is to Arthur, right? So there are some expressions of Merlin where he is with Arthur throughout all of it, right? He sets up Arthur's court. He's part of what brings about Arthur's magical conception. Uh, and then he's with Arthur through the downfall of the court. And then there are versions where he sets up Arthur's court and then Vivian entraps him in a hawthorn bush and he's out of there. Uh, and Arthur is on his own. Um, you know, the wonderful thing about the legend is the sort of multiplicity of uh, texts and multiplicity of interpretations that we get, because there is certainly a prevailing narrative, but there's no definitive narrative, much like a mythology. Um, so that's something that I appreciate. It was public domain before there was public domain. <laughs> right, right. You cannot lay claim to this man. That's right. Um, so Uther, though, in every story is Arthur's dad. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Uh, yes. He's Arthur's father. Um, Jeffrey of Monmouth is the one who gives us the magical conception of Arthur, uh, aided by Merlin, uh, his mother, Igraine, who is the wife of Gorlois, the Lord of Cornwall, uh, one of the petty kings under Uther's, Uther is a high king before Arthur is. Um, and he falls in love with the lady Igraine and has, Merlin assist him in essentially raping her. Um, and then Arthur is born out of that union. There are some versions of the, the text. I think Thomas Mallory has um, Uther marrying a grain like the day after they sleep together so that uh, Arthur's not a bastard okay. <laughs> because you really can't have a bastard on the high throne of England. But, um, but, but yes, so Arthur is the, yeah, Uther is Arthur's father. Okay, very good. And then Merlin, so young Arthur, where was he raised? Uh, that depends. Uh, most versions, especially mo more modern versions of it, will have Arthur fostered at the court, or not the court, but the, at the, the home of one of Uther's vassals, usually Sir Ector. Um, and that's where he will 
form a bond with his half-brother Kay. Um, and typically, Arthur is not aware of his noble parentage. He conforms to an archetype that is a hallmark of the Arthurian legend known as the Fair Unknown, um, which describes a character of noble birth who is raised outside of the context of their noble birth. And essentially, this motif tests the idea of nature versus nurture. So Percival is another um, example of this within the legend, a knightly noble character who is raised outside of the context of court. And yet, the kind of noble, chivalrous aspects of this character can't help but come out. They can't help but be drawn to glory, to power, to uh, the, the marvels of court. Um, more contemporary versions of this, Harry Potter, oh. Jon Snow, right? Uh, um, Snow. There are so many versions of this kind of character who's removed from their magical or noble or kingly context and then can't help but see it blossom within them. Uh, it says that nature is stronger than nurture. I believe this also applies to Sir Mix-a-Lot, or am I getting that wrong? No, absolutely. He He couldn't help but like big butts, <laughs> and he could not lie. I, yeah. I was going to say Moses, but we'll go with Sir Mix-a-Lot. Moses, Perseus, right? It's, yeah, it's it, it's a it's a current that runs throughout a lot of storytelling. Sargon? Sargon also? Yeah. 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 There's, a, there's also a figure in one um, expression of the legend named Sir Le Bel Inconnu, whose name is literally Sir Le Fair Unknown. Um, <laughs> so some people take this, uh, this trope pretty literally and run with it. I guess so. So Arthur was, uh, so in, in Excalibur, I believe that Sir Ector was played by Patrick Stewart, a, a young Patrick Stewart who's never really young. That's uh, Leota Grants is Patrick Stewart. Oh, yes, okay. he's in that, yeah. Yeah. Um, Guinevere's father. Okay, right. And I remember there was a battle and they were they were losing it. And, and then they stumble upon people trying to figure out who can pull this sword out of a stone and nobody could. And and uh, the sword breaks. I think Kay's sword breaks. And they go, boy, go run find me a sword. And he's trying to get a sword and no one will give him a sword. And he sees one sticking out of a rock and pulls it out. And that is the movie Excalibur. And I may not even be being faithful to that, not, not intentionally. But how does it play out in the story? I know you're going to tell me it depends. Um, so uh, where, how are we introduced to Excalibur? Yes, so Excalibur does appear in Jeffrey of Monmouth and does appear significantly later. You're pretty spot on with the movie Excalibur, which is wonderful. I love that movie. But what's interesting about that movie and also many of the later texts uh, that, that deal with King Arthur is that the sword in the stone is usually not Excalibur, right? The sword in the stone is the sword that confers the um, sovereignty over the kingdom, right? It's the one that confirms he is the rightful king. But usually Excalibur is given to Arthur by the Lady of the Lake later on in the story, and it's given with a magical scabbard that is supposed to protect him from losing blood in battle. So there's usually two magical swords, right? So the one that he pulls from the stone, typically separate from Excalibur, often called Clarent, but then in many uh, modern texts, it's been conflated. And this is something that you'll see as a pattern with elements and characters of the Arthurian legend, because 
you look back at some of this mythology, some of these early texts, and a lot of things are duplicates, right? A lot of people have really similar names, and so it's much easier to conflate a lot of these characters into one, and a lot of them are harping on similar folk and international story motifs. So you look at the movie Excalibur and what it conflates, right? So it conflates the two swords, those become one thing, Excalibur, the conference of power and also the symbol of sovereignty over the land, over the, the kingdom. You look at Morgana in Excalibur, who is a conflation of a character named Morgaz and Morgan Le Fay, Arthur's two different half-sisters. Half and um, Vivian. What's that? And Vivian. She, she... And Vivian, yes. Yeah. Uh, Vivian or Ninue or Ninian, the Lady of the Lake who entraps Merlin. All of those are collapsed upon each other. And then you look at the adulterous love between Lancelot and Guinevere, which at times, especially in the movie Excalibur and in its source material, Sir Thomas Mallory's La Morte d'Arthur, it cannibalizes the story of Tristan and Isolde, which was another adulterous love affair existing from a tradition that was independent of the Arthurian legend and was absorbed into it over time. And there are echoes of Lancelot and Guinevere's love, interest in Isolde, and vice versa, until they become a kind of Mobius strip and you can't tell where one begins and one ends. I love the word she uses. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It, 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 it really, really is. Um, uh, I don't even know why I came. You should just—you should have done this without me. There, I have nothing to contribute. So your I, knowledge is just blowing me away. I do <laughs> want to uh, speak briefly about the French tradition because I've talked a lot about Geoffrey of Monmouth and his influence on the legend, but we can't really talk about uh, the development of the story and the hallmarks of the story without talking about what happened in the French language, also in the 12th century, later on, about 50 or 60 years after Geoffrey of Monmouth writes the history of the kings of Britain, and. This is like a key moment for me for the legend and for literature writ large uh, because a troubadour and a French bard named Chrétien de Troyes writes a handful of Arthurian romances, uh, including the one that introduces Lancelot to the material, right? He brings Lancelot onto the stage, probably invents Lancelot out of whole cloth unless there was a folkloric figure that Lancelot is based on. He introduces the grail to the legend, even if it's not the holy grail that it will later be. And then he introduces some of the most interesting questions and debates around the concept of chivalry and courtly love. And he does this by way of inventing the medieval romance, which becomes the dominant method of conveyance for the Arthurian legend. We shift out of being this historical, pseudo-historical material concerned with kings and countries and the formation of nations. We shift away from that and become romance. We become stories about people. We become stories about individuals, drama, relationships, and how the interconnectedness of a court can work its way upon a community and upon the individuals in that community. So uh, that shift happens, like I said, in that 12th century, that really key moment in medieval history, at least as far as the stories we tell are concerned. So the ethics and the code of conduct becomes the more important thing rather than 
who's getting who out of what country and, and who's ruling who and a magic sword and all that. It's all about the behavior. It's all about the, 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 the good person fights the good fight and, and wins at least, at, at least for a time. Right. And it's much less concerned about like which historical battles happened and who was killed in those battles or who won those battles. It comes down to usually relations between, relationships between like two three four people will become the meat of a story uh you can look at uh Chrétien de Troyes Lancelot also called the Knight of the Cart when he introduces this character to the legend and that story is all concerned with the adulterous love between Lancelot and Guinevere but that relationship because of the constraints of what was called courtly love is portrayed in a positive light because courtly love and chivalry suggest that knights do their knightly deeds for the love of ladies knights do what they do and they're spurred on to uh deeds of greater valor and nobility because they're trying to impress women and the more chaste the women or the more noble the women the higher born the women the greater the deeds. So if I'm Lancelot and I want to become the greatest knight in the world, who else would I aspire to love but the highest lady in the land, the queen? And so his love of her is what spurs him to become the greatest knight of the world. Their adultery, which objectively you would look upon as a as sin or as immoral or as a betrayal of Arthur, is what props up Arthur's court is what raises the reputation of Arthur's court because you have someone like Lancelot going out and doing such deeds of nobility and chivalry that all the other knights are trying to just get close to his level. So it does some really interesting things in exploring the problems of courtly love, the problems of chivalry, the contradictions of it, and Many of Chrétien's uh, other texts, like Eric and Aeneid, will also do this. Uh, Ivan, the Knight of the Lion, he writes, will also explore the kind of contradictions inherent in slavery. Uh, slavery? What? Chivalry. Right, yeah. <laughs> I've been talking a lot. Um, uh, the contradictions inherent in chivalry. And through that, he frequently... Well, well you're a slave to love if you're chivalrous, so... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, certainly Lancelot is. Um, but through those texts, he is not only defining the characteristics of chivalry, he is not only putting forth a literary definition of chivalry, but he is also engaged in interrogating it and frequently satirizing it. And that's one of the things that I find the most interesting about these, uh, these high medieval texts is that the very court the very characters that it is propping up it is also showing you warts and all their flaws and how impossible the code that they are attempting to live up to really is uh, it's something that i think continues to ask questions about the problems of masculinity today i think we can still look at a lot of these texts and say oh okay i see i see why masculinity is a problem right yeah, well, it's also changing the the sort of the trope of the idyllic male. You have the the Greek heroes. You have the Vikings. We, they could do whatever they want as long as they got fame. You know that that kind of thing. Um, now you have one. It's, you know, it's a cause, and the cause has to be love and 
you know, but Lancelot is so damn good at what he does that it, 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 you almost have to put up with it. It's like having, it's like you have the best quarterback in the world, but they're a terrible teammate, that kind of thing. But therein lies the tension, right? So chivalry is a word that encompasses a couple of different concepts. One of those being literally chivalry, like the French word from... You're doing business in an app-driven, multi-cloud world. You want to build and run your apps on your choice of clouds, and you need to manage all those clouds as easily as one. With VMware cross-cloud services, you've got options. That's because VMware delivers the multi-cloud choice, security, and control you need to accelerate innovation, deliver great apps, and drive business forward. VMware, the smarter way to cloud. Learn more at vmware.com. Breathe in and out. Let relaxation fill your mind, even if you're super stressed and behind on your taxes like me. Ah, sorry to interrupt. Who are you? I'm April from Tax Act. You can let go of tax season stress and elevate to a heightened state of serenity with our free expert help and a maximum refund. Free help? Ah, waves of calm are washing over me. Good, because here comes a storm of cash. Tax Act, the help you need for free. See taxact.com for details. Knights riding on horseback, chivalry, uh, which refers to martial prowess, uh, doing well in battle, doing well in tournaments, uh, being a skilled fighter is one of the ideals of the idea of chivalry. And then the other half of it is courtoisie, courtesy. So courtliness, um, being kind to women, speaking well, having good hygiene. These, these concepts get wrapped into one ideal, one ideal of chivalry, but they are in many ways very incongruous. They're hard to contain in one person. And so through the literature, our concept of what chivalry is becomes very capacious, but very, very hard to live up to. And that's what the best literature sure. explores and interrogates. Well, it's supposed to be hard to live up to. What, what, yeah. What, what's the purpose of a story if something's easy? That, that's not a very interesting story. Okay. Well, good. We, we, that was with a lot of passion, but now I've got to take you backwards and, and find out how Arthur meets Excalibur and... Uh, Yes, the Excalibur, the first sword, understood not the, the oh no, he meets the first sword, Claremont or Clarence, I think he said. Yes. Um, and then how does he rise to power? Uh, what's the, what is a lady of the lake? How does, how does this happen? And, uh, and you know, and where do we get to uh, a holy grail from and, and which characters are introduced and, and, you know, why is it only a brief shiny moment and, and, you know, why isn't, you know, it for a thousand years. Oh man, a lot of great questions. Okay, so we're starting with swords, right? Um, Excalibur, given to Arthur by the Lady of the Lake. The best expression of this, I believe, is in the uh, 13th century Vulgate Cycle, which is a series of French prose texts that are not terribly unified, but in general, the um, the Vulgate cycle or the Lancelot Grail cycle tends to give the most typical or expressive version of the legend that we associate today. Um, the Lady of the Lake, interesting, ambiguous figure who almost certainly has um, echoes of Celtic mythology, typically a fairy or descendant of fairies. Actually, Lancelot's mom, usually. Yeah. Um, See, that's what yeah. I read, that he was basically raised underwater, almost like in, a, in an Atlantis-like bubble 
in a lake in Britain. Right, yeah, Lancelot du Lac is his full name, Lancelot of the Lake. Um, and uh, it's not my particular area of expertise, but I believe that the legend goes that he was abducted by the Lady of the Lake and ah. then raised by her or fostered by her. Um, but some modern interpretations have done a really interesting job of um, fleshing that kind of stuff out. Um, Lady of the Lake, Vivian, Nimue, Ninian, certainly lots of names are ascribed to this figure, and usually they are the character who is also the entrapper of Merlin later on um, within the stories. So uh, Merlin is drawn to this woman who uh, is hoping to extract a charm from her, and then she entraps him either in a hawthorn bush, a cave, or the trunk of an oak tree, depending on what you're reading. Um, this Lady of the Lake, what else do we have? We're going to talk about the Grail? Uh, well, the Lady Lake gives Arthur Excalibur, so how, yes. I, I guess when do they meet, and uh, what what is Excalibur? So in the, in the Clive Owens movie, which wasn't so bad, uh, Excalibur was the sort of Julius Caesar, um, which, you know, it's a, a little silly, but, it, you know, I guess it was an interesting take I hadn't heard before. I, I don't think there's anything to that beyond that movie, but what do I know? Yeah, I have not seen the Clive Owen movie. I probably should. I did hear that it was supposed to tackle the kind of, like, Roman connections, which yeah. most interpretations don't, but I don't know how successfully it did that. Um, so Excalibur, the, um, the Vulgate Cycle, again, is the kind of best expression of that. Merlin um, and the Lady of the Lake present this to Arthur along with the scabbard, um, which is the enchanted scabbard. Arthur doesn't know this when he receives it. And Merlin famously asks him, which do you prefer, the sword or the scabbard? And he's like, the sword, the one that can kill people, um, not the, you know, fashion item that I wear on my belt. And Merlin says, no, actually, you should prize the scabbard because the scabbard is enchanted so that you don't lose blood during battle. Oh, it's a now trick. I'm so it's like so almost like the Green Knight myth where the sash, the green sash, was there. But it also goes back to the Veda where uh, Krishna goes to one of the brothers, I forget which one, and he says, do you want my armies or do you want me? And then they get a chance and the cousin says, well, I want your armies, of course. And then, and then the, the good brother from the five, I, I can't remember the names, says, I, I want you, Krishna. I mean, you, Lord, I know who you are. You're not fooling me. It's like, you know, you've had Odin there. So it's like, so if, if you are my chariot driver, you know, um, how, how can I possibly lose this war? Which, you know, so he's the wise one. But Arthur makes the, the dumb, dumb choice. But, but it's, it's okay. It's like, it's like family feud. It's only one X. It's not all three. Exactly. Yeah, he still gets to keep both of them. Although, ironically, and good connection with the Green Knight Girdle, because I, I do feel like there is a, uh, a connection there. Um, ironically, before Arthur's death on the battlefield with Mordred, he will lose the scabbard, which is supposed to protect him from um, losing blood. In some versions, it's Morgan Le Fay who like, tricks him and spirits it away. In other times, he just loses it. But, um, but yes, he loses the scabbard that he was supposed to prize uh, and then because of that... Well, you know what I always say, once a dum-dum, always a dum-dum. Always a dum-dum. Yeah, he managed to hold off a Saxon invasion, but he couldn't hold on to a belt. You give us Mobius Strip, and I give once a dum-dum, always a dum-dum. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now I want a lollipop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I'll see about getting the Uber Eats over there with the lollipop. <laughs> um, so, 
Where were we? Uh, the lance, uh, not the lance, the scabbard. He's presented the scabbard. He makes the wrong choice. He still gets to keep it. I guess the Lady of the Lake and, and Merlin at this point of time were still on good terms. Or Merlin escaped from his trap. Right. Um, and again, I'm referring to the prevailing narrative. So again, there are many versions of this. But yes. Um, so Arthur's court does flourish. He welcomes at one time, I think, 150 knights around the round table. Um, the round table is an invention of a writer named Wass or Wace, who is the first uh, French writer of the legend who adapts Geoffrey of Monmouth. Um, but the concept of the round table is um, that there is sort of an egalitarian, almost right. democratic quality to Arthur's court, something that is seized on in the 19th century and later. Um, because at a round table, no one sits at the head. No exactly. one is the leader of the table. Everyone is equal and everyone can be heard in their turn. Now, it wasn't um, like the Arsenio Hall show where one seat was much higher up than the others. Right, right. But there is a round table that is hanging in uh, Winchester Hall that has a portrait on it of clearly Henry VIII, who like painted himself really big as Arthur on the round table to be like, it's an egalitarian table and no one sits higher than anyone else except for, you know, me, Henry VIII. Okay, so um, now what I've been told about the round table and what I understood as a youth and from my readings and what I vaguely remember is that there were a whole lot of knights. You said 150, that, that sounds about right. What I've been hearing lately, and I'm not sure if this is something that's a modern construct to try to retrofit Arthur into a narrative, but that it was, there were 12 knights there and Arthur was the 13th seat, sort of like the Zodiac with 12 signs around the sun, Jesus with the 12 apostles, you know, one king of the gods with their pantheon of 12 and one one left, another filled it to make it a quorum or whatever. But what you're saying is no, it was a, it was a much larger table than that. You will certainly see the number 12 a lot in uh, expressions of the Arthurian legend because a lot of the people writing this are monks um, and people who are interested in connecting it with the story of Jesus. Um, so certainly that is probably somewhere. Um, yeah, most, uh, most accounts say there are several score uh, knights who sit at the table. Of course, for thinking historically, if there was an Arthur, there would have been no such thing as knights. There are no knights until about the year 1000, the 11th century, when knights start fighting on horseback. Um, but where was I going with that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, he invites a bunch of, he invites knights, almost 150. I imagine you're going to go, you were going to take him into conquests. So, yes, but I was also going to talk about uh, the Siege Perilous, which is a seat at the round table um, that is destined for no one to sit in it. If anybody sits in it, they will be, like, swallowed up into flames and killed until the, like, greatest knight who is a, a part of a prophecy comes to sit in it. And in some versions, that's Percival. Some versions, that's Galahad. Usually, it's the Grail Knight. Usually, it's the knight who is destined to achieve the Grail. This is where um, I'm confused, because... In some stories, I see Galahad as the pure, and others I find Percival as the the. And, and I guess what you're saying is it depends who wrote it. 
Sure. So um, if we want to transition into talking about the Grail, I can definitely clarify that for you. Oh, we don't have to. You, you, we, can, we can put a pin in. We stick in your, I, I don't want you to lose your place again, but you're doing... No, I think it's a good place to go because okay. that is the sort of the, the best focus of Arthurian energy, right? That's the most unified quest that we can find some different attestations of. Again, this is all literary. This is not historical. Um, the Holy Grail is an Arthurian... Uh, construct, not something that really exists elsewhere except adjacent to the Arthurian legend in like the tales of Joseph of Arimathea. J Joseph of Arimathea. Um, so, Chrétien de Troyes, who I talked about before, end of the 12th century, introduces the Grail through his story of Percival, or the story of the Grail. And Percival is uh, this fair unknown, this knight who leaves his sort of humble origins and goes to Arthur's court, realizes that he actually is of noble blood, and then undertakes this quest. He winds up in the land of the Fisher King, and he goes and sits at the Fisher King's table, um, and he sees this magnificent procession of items, these sort of spectral parade of people walking through the hall. One is carrying a bleeding lance, and one is carrying a grail. Um, and that's kind of all that they say about it. They're carrying right. a grail. Um, there's no description of it being the Holy Grail or being associated with Christ or whatever. And there's really no context to what a grail is. The best we can assume is that it's a kind of serving dish, not necessarily a cup. Percival is supposed to, according to some custom or some tradition or some prophecy, ask whom does the grail serve and why does the lance bleed? But he's been cautioned by his uncle not to speak too much in social situations because he will look stupid, <laughs> so he does not open his mouth. And because of that, he's cast out of the castle, and he has to continue his adventure and figure out how to come close to the Grail again. Chrétien, unfortunately, died like in the middle of writing this. If you've ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail and you've seen the guy who scrawled upon the wall... It's in the castle, uh, and he died in the middle of writing it. That's basically what happened to Chrétien. Um, so what comes next in the Grail tradition is usually people trying to continue, trying to add a continuation onto what Chrétien wrote. And a lot of that happens in the 12th and the 13th century. Percival is usually still kind of a focus of the Grail Knight and the seeker of the Grail. But when it becomes a more codified quest for the court, of King Arthur, that's when Galahad comes in. Galahad is the son of Lancelot, the greatest knight in the world, right, mm -hmm. who is summoned to the court of King Pelis, um, and he, thinking he is sleeping with Guinevere, his love, uh, sleeps with the king's daughter, mm -hmm. uh, whose name is Elaine. He's been hoodwinked, he wakes up in the morning, realizes what's happened, but it's too late, he's already conceived Galahad and he marries Elaine. Galahad is a prophesied uh, knight, right? He is going to come into this court and become the greatest, most noble, most chaste, most pure knight. He is essentially a monk who happens to ride a horse and swing a sword. There's a version of Galahad where he arrives at Arthur's court and he proves he's worthy by pulling a sword from a stone uh -huh. and sitting in that seat that was supposed to swallow people up in flames. It's like when the, the vision picked up Mjolnir in, in Age of yeah, Ultron. Exactly. You think one person is worthy, but then 
you know, somebody else can... Turns out Captain America was worthy, too. Everyone's worthy. Yeah, and in the um, 13th century Lancelot Grail cycle, which really uh, pulls together the, the Grail legend and follows the Grail cycle to its conclusion, um, there are about three knights left standing looking for the Grail, and those knights are Galahad, Percival, and Bors. Lancelot, not, even though he's the greatest knight in the world, he's not, he doesn't even qualify. Right? He's got an adulterous love affair with the queen. Yeah, he's, he's busy. far too worldly. He cannot come close to the cup of Christ. Percival is still a virgin, I think, but he's been tempted by women, so he's not quite as chaste as uh, Galahad. Galahad is a, like, total virgin, has never touched a woman in his life, completely chaste and pure and uh, devout and pious. And so, because of this, he is granted the glory of being able to look upon the grail to um, achieve the grail he looks inside it and sees great wonders and marvels that we are not privy to as the reader um and then he's usually taken up to heaven because what are you going to do after you've seen the grail are you going to go back to arthur's court where there's all this infidelity and incest i don't think so no you're going to become metatron or you know some sort of apotheosis or Whatever it is. Is it true that the Grail is the same thing that's in the case in Pulp Fiction? Yep, exactly. Okay. You're exactly right. Um, I thought as much. Certainly. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's obviously interesting that in this uh, version of the Grail cycle, um, the knights achieve the Grail. They find the Grail in the Middle East. Uh, because at the same time as this is happening... There is a, a wash of crusading ideology over the West, right? The Crusades coincide with uh, the 12th and 13th century um, writings uh, that concern the Arthurian legend and particularly the Christian elements of the Holy Grail. And there is a sense among some scholars that these stories of the Holy Grail being achieved by a British knight is almost a compensation, if you will, for the loss of the Holy Land um, during the Crusades. Yeah, it's also ruining a whole lot of stories I heard about. It was Joseph of Arimathea who brought the Grail back. You know, you figure somewhere around year 40 or 50 or so, which would be a thousand years or 1200 years, somewhere in that range uh, earlier. And, and uh, I, I don't know, but I guess it fits in with uh, so it fits in well with some Templar legends, but doesn't fill it, fit in with other Templar legends, which also fits in with some Mason legends, which also doesn't fit in with some Mason legends. And I'm sure there's other, you know, Rosicrucians and whatever that, uh, I, I have to tell you, I tried to read that, the chemical uh, wedding. And I mean, everyone says it's, you know, full of symbolism. I, whatever it was, it was completely either above me or just seemed like a silly book. But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, no, but the yeah the Joseph of, Arim Joseph of Arimathea legend that he brought it to Britain, um, it, that persists, right? So in Glastonbury, there's the Chalice Well, which is supposedly where Joseph buried the Holy um, the Holy Grail. Now springs uh, a healing spring at the Chalice Well, and he was uh, said to have struck his staff into the ground in Glastonbury, and from that seed flowered a thorn tree that flowers at Christmas and in the spring. Aww. And that's still the tree that they cut 
you know, a sprig from for the British monarch each Christmas. So that legend certainly persists. Okay, I'm good with that. That's nice. Tradition is lovely. Sometimes. It is. It is. Mostly, I guess. It also, uh, you know, poor uh, Dan Brown, you know, I guess they stopped in France, but uh, didn't didn't deposit the thing there. That That's where he got, well, his thing was, uh, they, they could have taken the cup wherever. He, he, the, the cup was a diversion. It was a decoy in his version. Yeah, it wasn't a cup. It was, uh, it was the womb. Right, it was it? the womb. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Which is terrific also. So, uh, very interesting. Good stuff. But he stole that from someone else. There wasn't there another book, like the, the book of blood and... Holy, what? holy blood, holy grail. That's the one. Called. That's the one. Yeah, I watched a lot of History Channel specials like before and after that movie came out, and I got pretty radicalized by. <laughs> that's fair. Freemason and Templar conspiracy theories. I know that, that's one of the beautiful things about this show and yours is that you can get into those things and explore them from different perspectives. But absolutely. Right. So we've got the Grail. Um, we have so. At some point, Arthur loses Excalibur. There's a battle. Uh, it's at Camlin, um, which you're the second person who's told me it's at Camlin, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to that. Please. Camlin does sound like Camelot. I don't know if that's correct or not. Um, and, I mean, I know it sounds like it. I just don't know if there's any relationship between the two places. Um, and then there's possibly a death. Possibly a sort of death, possibly a resurrection, Isle of Avalon, something. So, you know, Merlin comes back in some stories, some we never see him again. Uh, so, t- so, yeah, take us there in whatever version you want to. Sure, yeah. The Battle of Camelot, uh, the, show, the final showdown is between Arthur and Mordred, and we haven't talked much about the conception of Mordred, but... Again, a lot of traditions will conflate Morgan and Morgaz, but typically Morgaz is the sister that Arthur uh, unknowingly sleeps with. Mm. He knows he's sleeping with her, but he doesn't know that she's his sister. Um, And conceives Mordred, who in the age-old, you know, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker sort of tradition, rises up and tries to overthrow his father, right? It's the the classic, um, you know, we're all post-Freudian now, but... um, they certainly weren't at that time, but it is something that echoes throughout time: the, the son rising up to overthrow the father. What and story is complete without patricide, or at least attempted patricide? Exactly, and there is a version. There is a version where um, Arthur hears a prophecy that a child born on May Day will rise up and overthrow him, and so he massacres all the May Day babies, very much like King Herod massacring the innocents. But Mordred escapes. Right, and Mordred survives, and that's another thing that we'll see in international folk motif. Uh, it's Harry Potter again, you know, it's Perseus, it's Moses. Jason. Um, so, uh, so, Battle of Camlan in the Vulgate Cycle, it's on the Salisbury Plain where Stonehenge is, um, which Merlin is sometimes responsible for, moving Stonehenge from Ireland, or building Stonehenge, engineering Stonehenge. Um, and then the uh, kind of poetic version of this is that Arthur is mortally wounded on the field, Mordred is dead, and he summons his knight Grifflet um, to dispose of Excalibur for him, because if he does not hold it, he needs to cast it away so that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. And Grifflet is like totally upset about the idea of throwing away this important and powerful sword, so he goes to the lake, 
he hides the sword he goes back to arthur and is like i threw it away and arthur's like did you though and he's like (laughs) nope and so he goes back he doesn't throw it away he goes back to arthur and is like i threw it away but did you (laughs) and then he goes back and the third time he actually throws it into the lake where the lady of the lake's arm shining like winter morning catches the catches the sword and then he goes back and then arthur feels like he can pass on um and then he either dies or he is carried away by morgan le fay or the women of uh healer women and carried on a barge to the island of avalon this holdover from celtic mythology to heal his wounds and perhaps one day come again as the once and future king there he awaits the hour of his people's greatest need and he will be summoned once again if he is needed again age-old folklore mythological motif of the king beneath the mountain well if the blitzkrieg didn't do it then i i i fear for for know, what's right? coming what is he waiting Wait. for Blitzkrieg did do it. It was Churchill, right? Oh, wow. It was Arthur reborn. Constantine, Churchill. I mean, that's an interesting theory. Um, he looks but different. Avalon has an interesting connection with Glastonbury, too, which we just talked about with Joseph of Arimathea and the Holy Grail, because um, it's it's long been, Glastonbury Tor has long been associated with the Isle of Avalon or the Isle of Apples. In um, the Welsh or Celtic version, it would have been called Inniswitrin, Inniswitrin, um, Island of Glass. Glastonbury Tor, it's a big hill, if you've ever seen it, with um, a tower on top of it, St. Michael's Tower. Um, it's not an island, but it used to be. Oh. Um, and it's in the west country of England in Somerset. And, you know, a thousand, two thousand years ago, it was uh, marshland, it was all fen. So there would be periodic floods that would you know, create a shallow lake around this giant hill that protrudes up from the lake. So you would have to take a boat to get to it, which... You're doing business in an app-driven multi-cloud world. You want to build and run your apps on your choice of clouds, and you need to manage all those clouds as easily as one. With VMware cross-cloud services, you've got options. That's because VMware delivers the multi-cloud choice, security, and control you need to accelerate innovation, deliver great apps, and drive business forward. VMware, the smarter way to cloud. Learn more at VMware.com. And now for our bonus round. It's the most stressful season of all. Name it, Dave, for 300 points. Uh, what is winter? Oh, come on. Correct answer. What is tax season? Sorry, Dave. Whoa, who are you? I'm April from Tax Act, where we help you file for less and get more. More for less? Yep, so you can turn tax season into maximum refund season. Well, there it is, folks. Tax season's a winner after all. Switch to Tax Act today and start for free. See taxact.com for details. You know, works along with the idea of it being an island. And then in the 12th century, the monks at Glastonbury Abbey claimed to have exhumed the grave of King Arthur uh, and his wife, Guinevere. So, um, and that, of course, came with a cross that was inscribed that says, here lies the great King Arthur, along with his second wife, Guinevere, in the Isle of Avalon. So, kind of from time out of mind, this has been associated with both the sort of Celtic, mystical, magical energies of Avalon, this gate to the other world, and also 
the kind of cradle of British Christianity with the story of Joseph of Arimathea and the Holy Grail. Excellent. That is a great telling of the tale or weaving all the many versions together. And, and Yeah, yeah, you need to take a breath. Good job, Derek. <laughs> really glad I'm here. Yeah, we all are. Um, is there anything you want to add to it? Any any interpretations, extrapolations, impressions, Mobius strips? I have no Mobius strips. Um, what is just... your favorite pop culture adaptation of the Arthurian legend? Oh, the movie Excalibur by far. God bless you. I love that movie. Yeah, right, yeah, by, I think by I far. With Monty Python and the Holy Grail as a close second, but a clear <laughs> second. Close, but clearly second. I would argue that Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a surprisingly accurate um, adaptation of the Arthurian legend as a whole, because it encompasses the the absurdity of the Welsh tradition, the um, kind of humor and satire of the French tradition, and then also has tons of fun just massacring the pseudo-historical tradition. So I highly recommend... Uh, looking at that with a sort of critical eye. Would you say that's your favorite adaptation? I would say so. I love Excalibur. You know that I do. Um, and then I love a lot of contemporary literary adaptations of it. Unfortunately, the writer of The Mists of Avalon was a freaking total monster. Marion Zimmer, being. Bradley. Bradley, yeah. Um, I, and I read the book before I knew, and it's still is one of my favorite books, but she was just awful. Um but I also, if you're looking for interesting modern adaptations, I, uh, I highly recommend the movie The Green Knight. I think it was a beautiful and interesting response to a medieval chivalric masterpiece, which I could have dove into for like four and a half hours, but I didn't. And um, if you have kids, I love The Kid Who Would Be King. I think it's lovely. And um, if you like reading young adult literature, I highly recommend Legend Born by Tracy Dion. Mm. Uh, okay. Um, how about the, what about the Disney movie, The Sword in the Stone? I don't like it. I okay. just don't, you know, it, it, it's, it's an adaptation of T.H. White's, uh, The Once and Future King. The first book of that is The Sword in the Stone, um, which is great. And it's that T.H. White is adapting Sir Thomas Mallory, but then kind of bringing this youthful Arthur very much into full flesh. It's lovely. Um, but the Disney movie, it, it, I just find that Disney movie does not engage with the most interesting aspects of what King Arthur is about. It's just about characters turning into animals and being chased by um, sexually aggressive female animals. And that, that just doesn't get me going. Hmm. I didn't think it was a particularly good movie either. Though I don't remember those particular parts, but probably because I'm a lot older. Um, what about the play Camelot, uh, notably with Robert Goulet, but it doesn't have to be Robert Goulet's version. Richard Harris. Uh, Richard Harris is, is my, um, is my Arthur. Um, you know, Camelot is, is fun. Um, it's fun. But that's... I don't, I don't have a great, like, um, attachment to it. Um, okay. although it is kind of interesting to think about how the Kennedys just put it on every night. <laughs> in the White House. That is a little weird. Uh, maybe it was just to make noise to cover up the what was really going on, you know. <laughs> Reptilian yeah. baby drinking <laughs> stuff, you know, all that kind of thing. Now we're cooking Garden of Doom style, yeah. Yeah, that's the, we always have to get back to that, for sure. Yeah. Um, is there like a deep cut 
adaptation out there somewhere, some, you know, BBC version or some like Spanish version that you can find on Netflix or an anime version that, you know, something that uh, the average person might not know about, or at least me, you know, putting myself as the average person is probably a stretch. What do you, I, I don't think this is a deep cut, but the Crystal Cave books that focus on Merlin by... Mary Stewart. By Mary Stewart. I actually only read the Crystal Cave, which I, I loved. Like, I, I really appreciated the young Merlin uh, that, that arrives in that, as well as the kind of emphasis on the mysteries and the cult of Mithras as the, like, uh, you know, pagan god of warriors. But what, what about you? Because I know you read the whole series, didn't you? I believe so i can't remember if i've read every one of them but most of them but the whole premise is is it takes like a realistic look into the life of merlin who was merlin what merlin would have been like and it tells the arthurian legend from merlin's it's very low magic so merlin doesn't really have a lot of powers he is a prophet um and so does is able to see the future but all of the things that he gets subscribed to for magical things are things that he did more by like pragmatic and engineering. And then people said, wow, look at the magical thing that he did. And um, it's a cool look at the Arthurian legend. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's, she really emphasizes Merlin as engineer because of the Stonehenge connection, right? Because of the castle with the dragons, she's pulling in so much from the, uh, from the legendary material. And then, really steeping you in the atmosphere of it so i yeah i recommend those i need to read the rest of them mary stewart Um, and the series is called what again the crystal cave yeah it's the the crystal Crystal cave the hollow hills and then i forget what the third one is called i forget too um i read them a long time ago yeah but they're yeah at least i've read the first one and it's wonderful um a deep cut for me oh my god i don't know if any of your listeners have seen this but what kind of like got me into the legend and i was definitely not old enough to watch it's not like it's not terrible for young people, but it's not great, is there was a an NBC, I think, miniseries called Merlin in, like, 1998 with Sam Neill as Merlin. I remember. And Isabella Rossellini as Nimue, and Helena Bonham Carter as Morgan Le Fay, and it was bananas. And I just loved it. There was so much magic and so much, like, weird sexual transgression that I was like eight years old and I was like, this is cool. (laughs) Um, So that was one of the things that like really catapulted me into the Arthurian legend. I think I watched it like five years ago and it like does not hold up in the slightest, but, um, but it's fun. It's, it is fun if you're looking for like a really weird time. All right. So I, I have to ask you because I know that your son's name is Arthur and I know that his middle name is also Roland. And I know Roland is from the Stephen King Dark Tower series and that Roland is either a descendant or cognate of Arthur or one and one both at the same time. So tell us a little bit about Roland. Not, not, the, not the middle name of your child, but the, the character that is his middle name namesake. In Roland in the Dark Tower. Yeah, and, and how it relates to Arthur or how, how we know that from... Yeah, that's a that could be a long conversation. I have a lot of thoughts about this in the Wheel of Ka, in which we discuss every single book of the Dark Tower. Um, Roland Deschain is of a fictional place called Gilead, in a society that had crumbled and decayed after a civil war, and he is the last gunslinger, which is sort of like a cowboy version of a knight 
of this world and he is hunting the person he feels responsible for this called the man in black but the man in black is really a chipping stone to his ultimate quest which is to attain the dark tower which sits at the nexus of all reality roland has two guns with sandalwood grips that are hard caliber iron they're like really like iconic cowboy-esque weapons that are said to have been made from the sword of arthur eld arthur eld is the first king of gilead and arthur eld has a link to king arthur in the dark tower universe there are many worlds and the world of roland is adjacent to our world so it's not king arthur in a literal sense but it's king arthur in this other version this other where and when who forms gilead but not camelot it's worth noticing that or mentioning that gilead is also a post-apocalyptic society there were these people called the old ones and had this great calamity which is presumably a nuclear war considering in his world how many um creatures people have um genetic mutations presumably from the nuclear fallout by fleshated so, mutants like from a uh, strange bro yeah and just like failed stocks and there are these things called the slow mutants who are humans that are just mutated into these like barbaric cannibals and so out of the dark age post the nuclear apocalypse and king never says it was a nuclear apocalypse but you can extrapolate that it was comes arthur eld who forms gilead who forms the new military order of the gunslingers to which roland is a direct descendant of and um the quest for the dark tower is inspired by the robert brownie robert brownie poem pardon me child roland on the dark tower came so king read that saw clint eastwood um in all of the great spaghetti westerns and he was also a huge fan of lord of the rings so he combined all three of those things together into the dark tower series so a lord of the ring epic based upon a poem featuring a cowboy who is connected to our king arthur and our where and when yes and there is a real gilead in in like the holy land it's yeah. It's, it's, it's like somewhere between where Israel and Jordan would be right now. It'd be sort of like overlap both, I think. I think. I heard there is a ball there. Uh, but Roland is also the name of a, uh, a nephew of Charlemagne right. in the chivalric tra tradition. Um, so there is an 11th century chanson de geste called The Song of Roland, which tells about the Battle of Roncevaux Pass, um, where Roland, this great uh, warrior, not a knight yet because they're... Um, there are no knights in the eighth century. Um, he he is a great crusader for the cause of Charlemagne, and it's this tragic poem about his death in battle, which is very honorable and very um, very powerful and very sad. And he also has a magical sword called Durandal, which is probably a um, something that contributed to the legend around Excalibur. It's one of those similar swords of power, um, and. Certainly there are connections between that Roland and Robert Browning's Roland and Stephen King's Roland. There are symbols that are repeated, like a horn that is blown, um, and also the kind of knightly endeavor um, that is associated with gunslingers and with chevaliers, with knights. Yeah, and, and in the Dark Tower universe, all stories sort of live and breathe and pulse and mix 
So there are everything from Beatles songs in Roland's world to references to the Wizard of Oz mm -hmm. to references to um, uh, Watership Down and just to name a few off the top of my head. There are too many references to other stories within that to even... Well, the Elton John play. song. He keeps hearing the, the uh, Someone Saved My Life Tonight. Yeah, so there's there's just so many different things because uh, stories in the Dark Tower universe, they are living things um, and they are breathing things. And most likely, if you're writing a story as a novelist, you're just channeling a different where and when, where the rules of the universe are a little bit different from ours. It might look similar to ours, which is Stephen King actually ends up a character in the Dark Tower writing the books the dark tower so it gets very very meta and there there's just these overlaps so in a certain respect he, he also sort of makes him his twin and he's the gunslinger so he goes from being like you know rugged handsome clint eastwood to rugged and not so handsome stephen king which sort of which, yeah. sort of, which was very clive cussler to me who always writes himself in the books i'm like oh, okay I, I digress i get it's yeah it's indulgent but i think he's earned it I, I, you know, and when I first read The Dark Tower my first time through, which I've now done four or five times since. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I was a little like, hmm, why is Stephen King a character in this? I've certainly made my peace with it. I think it makes sense in this universe because, because storytelling is so powerful, it's really saying that, you know, when you write a story, you're engaging in another universe that could potentially even right. exist. Right. The writer, that was the itch he, he had to scratch. And that's... that's yeah, really, sure. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I get it. It was self-indulgent, but we but we can we can excuse it. But reading that four or five times, that's like 6,000 pages. Anyway. Um, but I'm sure that... Uh, well, I know that you have several shows on the Wheel of Cobb out there. Because I've listened to several of them. Um, and... Uh, I think this is a, probably a great time for you guys to talk about your podcasts. Sure. I'm just going to quickly add one more oh. deep cut Arthurian adaptation. If you like comic books, DC Comics in the 80s uh, released something called Camelot 3000, where the once in future king awakens to fight off an alien invasion instead of an Anglo-Saxon invasion. And it is extremely ahead of its time. Like, all of Arthur's court are reincarnated into new bodies. Tristan, I think, is reincarnated into a woman's body and has to deal with, like, the fact that he is a woman now who still loves Isolde. It's a really cool, really progressive, and really interesting um, adaptation that is super comic-y. Highly I recommend Camelot 3000. I think but I had that. Moving on. Um... The Midnight Myth. That's where Derek and I are from. The Midnight Myth podcast is available anywhere you find podcasts. What we do is we deconstruct history, mythology, and philosophy as they relate to your favorite pieces of pop culture. Our latest episode is on House of the Dragon, where we talk about some of our general thoughts about it, but then we also dive deep into the sort of origins of high fantasy and then the historical context that inspired the Targaryen Civil War, which is the anarchy, the conflict between Stephen and Matilda. But we talk about everything, uh, history, mythology, philosophy, and pop culture. In the Midnight Myth feed, there is also the Wheel of Ka with me and my co-host Steve, where we started rereading The Dark Tower and talking about each book. We are now on the monumental task of trying to read every Stephen King book and relate those books to The Dark Tower where they do or do not relate. We are currently working through The Shining, 
the goal was to have that episode out for Halloween. Here we are at the almost at Thanksgiving, so we're definitely behind. Um, but we will be doing an episode of The Shining as soon as we can. Yeah, we've all got kids and lives, so it's it's it is, tough. It is a winter story, so you don't need you can you could say you changed the schedule on purpose. There you go. We got snowbound. We we could say that. However, I just said that we just got behind, so you know. Yeah, but you said it on Garden of Doom. You didn't say it on Midnight Myth, and we we need not assume that all of your listeners. I mean, I hope they do, but we we don't know that they will for sure. At this time, if they're not, like, what's going on? I don't they know. Should all, they should all be right. Come on over. I I'll, I blame that cat that you threw out around midway through the show. <laughs> Who, whose name whose name I'm sure is Gawain or something. It's it's Claudius actually, yeah, but okay. <laughs> very close. close um uh great. So uh Midnight Myth Wheel of Caught, then uh I also make a podcast called Sleep and Sorcery, which is available on all podcast players on YouTube and on the meditation app Insight Timer. They are original bedtime stories that I write and record inspired by folklore and fantasy. Actually next week's episode is going to take place at Glastonbury and have a lot of meditations on the role of Joseph of Arimathea, the Holy Grail, and the Isle of Avalon. So uh, come along, enjoy, and drift off to sleep to the dulcet tones of my voice. Excellent. Sleep well, and sorcery. Yeah, very good. So thank you. Is there anything else that you guys want to promote, or is, is, is that all the stuff that you put out into the outside that's world? All, that's all the stuff. That's, oh, that's it right now. We're just trying to survive. Well, yeah. So, folks, definitely give their shows a listen if you haven't already. Uh, check out the shows that uh, that we did on Garden of Doom as well. And also check out the episode I guessed with them on The Witch. But check out their stuff, too. Um, obviously, you know why I've guessed, because while my brain may function, my mouth and brain don't always function that well together, but theirs do. Uh, so it's just beautiful to hear them speak. I they're, you know, I know that Derek gives all credit to Laurel and she deserves lots and lots of credit, but Derek's an absolute pleasure and a brilliant fella as well. So they're terrific together. Um, so check out their shows, rate them, review them, refer them to your friends and your six degrees. Do the same for me if you haven't already. And before we go, do you guys have a song that I should use as an outro that's that just says King Arthur to you? Otherwise, I'm going to use the the Sanford Townsend bad one, which has nothing to do with it except for the uh, the, the smoke from the distant fire. <laughs> oh my God! Am I going to recommend some Lorena McKennett, the Mummers Dance? The, the Mummers Dance. That okay. <laughs> are there words in it? Like is this? Uh, yeah, you'll you'll get it. You'll get it when you hear it. Okay. I was just thinking, Eye of the Tiger. That's also good. Because, you know, because it's about, like, overcoming everything and all the obstacles. And though, you know, Arthur's associated with a dragon, you could easily do Eye of the Dragon, and this yeah. part would be just as good. There you know? go. Or anything mm-hmm. dragon-related. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Eye of the Tiger is always Rocky Three to me. And and uh, Hulk Hogan, b- before they wrote that stupid Real American song. Um, well, hey, we're, we're in Philadelphia, so. Indeed you, you are. Indeed you are. That, that, there's a synchronicity right there. All right. I can't thank you guys enough. Excellent job. Well done. And to the listeners, thank you for tuning in. And hopefully you'll listen in next week when we have another episode of Garden of Doom. And maybe middle of the week there'll be a Garden of Doom. You never know. I'm sort of uh, not that consistent with that one. So thank you again. And hear you next week.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This is a St. Jude moment. My daughter's Aspen. She has stage 4 neuroblastoma. We're here at St. Jude to treat her disease. I just want to say thank you. The financial help given here goes a long way. St. Jude saved us. It gave us hope. And St. Jude is like, uh, it's a gift. Donate now at stjude.org slash curing kids.